This is a podcast by Wellhouse Church, where we talk about what it's like to be a Christian Monday through Saturday, to live as a person of faith and a culture against faith. What's up, everyone? What's going on, doing? man? I'm good. I'm good. It's a good week. Uh, getting to the end. My mother-in-law is taking the kids for the whole weekend, so get some much-needed time alone with Hunter just for us to refuel, reconnect, you know, all those types of things that you lose with the busyness of life. Yeah. I'm sure that's hard. I mean. Yeah, especially in the middle of a pandemic. Um, yeah. You know, we. Well, when your wife's a nurse, for sure. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of people have kind of lightened on the pandemic. Um, we still take it pretty seriously. Um, Hunter sees it every day. Uh, sees people die from it almost every day. Um it's just a big, like, it's a big deal. So It's not something to take lightly. Yeah, so we still don't go out. You know, we still try to stay at home as much as possible. Um, and we have two toddlers that don't know about this thing called personal space. <laughs> um, so, yeah, sending them um, with my mother-in-law this weekend will give us some much-needed time of just quiet, Sabbath, like, rejuvenation, reconnection. So I'm busy this week because I'm trying to get all my work done. So, so you can have I can, the yeah, so I can not do anything this weekend. If you guys don't know, I'm an Enneagram three, and <laughs> so I'm constantly working. But also, yeah. um, with that, I just happen to be of this weird persuasion that I want to do at least a little bit of work every single day because yeah. I feel like if I don't, I like. I don't know, I get out of the flow or something. And so I, I work every single day. So the unhealthy side of a six is a three, right? Uh, yes. Yeah, I thought so. Um, well, I guess I'm in a really un... Or is it the nine? Well, the unhealth, an unhealthy three is a nine, which means an, a healthy six would be a nine. So, yeah, an unhealthy six would be a three. Yeah. Um, sorry, guys. We're going to do lots of more episodes on, yeah, the, Enneagram. on the Enneagram. Yeah. Just tune into uh, Practicing Presence. You'll you'll get all that information. Um, so, I guess I'm in a pretty unhealthy state because I'm doing the exact same thing you're doing. Working every single day. <laughs> Working yeah. every single day nonstop. Um, yeah, it sucks. <laughs> yeah. I don't know that it sucks because for me... I don't have an alternative. Like it is who I am. Yeah. Right. So you, you look at it and go, man, I'm in a, I'm not in a healthy place. I, I need, uh, I need some self care time. Yeah. For yeah. me, I look at it and go, this is life. Um, yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, no, that's not me. It, a different, different kind of ball game for me. If I find myself sitting on the couch when there's work to be done, I'm not in a healthy place. Yeah. Cause that means I'm acting kind of like a nine. So um, the day that this, that we're recording this, the new Assassin's Creed game, was delivered to my house yesterday. Oh, and I have so Clayton. So just backstory on that: Clayton has played every one of those games since they were first released. Uh, I had the very first one when it was still a PlayStation exclusive. Um, yeah, so what? Two thousand nine. I was just gonna say that's over a decade of playing this game. Yeah, um, I'm committed. Yeah, <laughs> I'm. I'm like deeply committed. And do you still have every one of them? Yeah, yeah, yeah I do. Um, I had gotten rid of some of them and then went back and rebought them. Um, but no, I, I've collected every single one and have actually the steel books 
or all of them that they have offered the steel books for. Wow. Um, so, and you haven't played it yet. I haven't played the new one yet. No. Yeah. It's killing me, dude. Yeah. You're not in a healthy place, bro. The, the six in you needs to find some self care time. Yeah. Some time to be alone. Yeah. That's my five wing a little bit, but, um, yeah. So busy, busy, busy. Yeah, absolutely. So we've been, um, talking about families though. Yeah. The biblical model of family. And if you've tuned into this, you've, you've read the title and you realize that we're asking the main question, um, should we have the biblical model of family? Is that the right way to go? It, it has some things about it that I think are helpful and useful and good. It has some things about it that I think are highly unhelpful um, and destructive, um, which there may be some people listening to this going, how can you say that? It's in the Bible. Um, But for one, both of the household codes we have in the New Testament talk about how slaves should interact with their masters and all of both of them say like obey. Yeah. Well, slavery is quite destructive. Yeah. So like, especially that model of slavery. Yeah. So, um, and it's included in the household code. Um, the Ephesians one is broken up a bit. So it has like the Christian household code, which just covers husband and wives and it has children in its own section and then it has slaves in its own section. But like they're all the household code. Yeah. So it's like, yes, there are things that are very destructive about it. Just in that, like, I don't know that anyone, well, I would hope that no one would think that slavery is okay anymore. Yeah. Um, I could be wrong, but Lord Jesus come now. Um, I'm tired of that fight, but all people are worthy of dignity and respect. Like I'm one of perplexed that like people still don't agree with me on that. Yeah. Um, so as a social work student, um, the third value listed in the national association of social workers code of conduct, um, is the dignity and worth of the human being. Yeah. Um, And that is just inherent and just buried deep within me, and slavery is just contrary to that. Um, Yeah, and so I would hope that everyone would be with us on this. I mean, if we truly believe that human beings are made in the image and likeness of God, then they are equal. Yes. They're worth it. Um, And also don't forget that Jesus was probably a a very dark, dark, dark dark-skinned person. And it's important to remember, and if you're— a first-time listener, um, you probably haven't heard this before, or maybe definitely haven't heard us say this before, um, but the Bible is written for us, not to us. That's exactly right. Um, It was written specifically in a specific time and place for a specific audience. About Um, 2,000 years ago. Yeah. Um, So this model of family, um, the, the codes about slavery were very specific to that time and place. As are some of the other language 
in the text. Yeah. I think we've done a misservice or we've done a disservice when we approach the scriptures because we found ways to get rid of dietary restrictions of Leviticus. Yeah. We found ways to get over not wearing two types of cloth from Leviticus. We've found ways to get rid of slavery. Yeah. Um, but we haven't found ways to get rid of gender oppression. Yeah. We haven't found ways to get rid of unhealthy models of parenting. Yeah. We haven't found ways to get rid of patriarchy. Yeah. Um, when they're all the same argument, if we can honestly say it's cultural, then we can say it's cultural. Like yeah. we have statistical data that tells us that there are things about this model that lead to unhealthy human beings. Because one thing we have to remember is Paul's not trying to send the world, the known world into a social upheaval. Yeah. Paul has a construct that he has to work within. And so he has in here things about slavery. He has in here things about women submitting to their husbands. But then when we actually see him in practice, we get the letter to Philemon where he tells Philemon to receive his slave Onesimus as he would receive Paul. Yeah. Equality, abandoning slavery. We have things like first Corinthians nine for in Christ, there's neither male nor female slave nor free Greek nor Jew. We have situations where Priscilla and Aquila are apostles. They're a husband and wife team. And out of the six times they're listed three times, she is listed before he is. Mm Mm-hmm. We have moments and times where we see and we can point and we can put our finger on that Paul didn't act this out in practice. Yeah. And so for me, um, I think we just need to read our Bibles better. Yeah. I don't I don't think we do a good job of reading our Bibles. You know, one that one that I commonly use as an example of this is a lot of traditions limit women preachers mm-hmm. and they'll point to things like first Corinthians, uh, 11 or sorry, first Corinthians 14 for, I do not permit a woman to speak in church or they'll point to things like first Timothy two for, I do not permit a woman to speak or have authority over a man, but that's it. Those are the only two places they can point to. And yet we have Phoebe, who is probably the first preacher of the letter to the Romans. Yeah. We have Lydia, who is the founder of the house church at Philippi. We have Mary, Magdalene, and Martha, who experience a very intimate place with Jesus. We have Old Testament prophetesses. We have, you know, women are the first preachers of the resurrection. I mean, we have all these stories of women time and time and time again preaching and doing these roles. Priscilla and Aquila, another great example. Um, In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says, women, when you pray and prophesy, so the expectation is that they will, Mm -hmm. cover your head. Yeah. 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 What, what's the exact reference for that if people want to go and look 
It's the whole chapter. Okay. The whole chapter is about the head, or the first half of the chapter is about head coverings for women as they pray and prophesy in first Corinthians chapter 11. Go, go read that and read it a bit closer. Um, pay, pay attention to the, sum of the verbiage. It's not a question of whether or not they can pray and prophesy. It's the question of it when they do, what manner should Should they they be? Yeah. So should they cover their head? Yeah. Um, which is a cultural thing. Ladies, you are not wearing head coverings anymore. So in conflict theory, um, which if you're not familiar with conflict theory, um, it is a sociological theory. And it, okay. it's kind of like basically accepted across okay. the board. Um, Karl Marx developed it. Okay. And, and people since have taken it and developed it. And um, conflict theorists use this term called gatekeeping. Okay. Um, and we're probably going to talk about this in another episode of Let's Talk uh, later down the way. Um, but... Um, conflict theorists have this term called gatekeeping and in the terms of 2020, it's probably better called controlling the narrative. Mm. Um, and basically what, what they're saying is it it happens in the form of mass media sort of adjacently. Um, and how this narrative has been pushed, uh, uh, this narrative of patriarchy has been pushed within the church can come from this conflict theory, right? This, yeah. this, this specific place, because what happens when you try to get ordained with a certain tradition, mm. right? If you can't check these boxes, if you can't agree to these terms, we won't ordain you. Yeah. Well, and that, that brings up another great point because in first Timothy, I found this not too long ago. In First Timothy chapter 1, there's this, uh, some people call it a vice list, but it's a list of sins. Um, and in verse 10, he's reading. Give him just a minute. Yeah, in verse 10, it goes into this vice list, and it says, this is First Timothy 1.10, Fornicators, sodomites, slave traders. It's interesting. Controlling the narrative is always done by people in positions of power, which usually, it's not always, but usually means the most educated. Yep. We have very educated people translating our Bibles. Go back and look at Bible translations from 100 years ago. That word, slave traders, wasn't translated that way. You know what it was translated as? No. Kidnapping. Oh, wow. Because kidnapping and slavery are not the same thing. Mm. But slave traders, that's identifiably something. And so we look at this and go in First Timothy and we go, it's right there. Yeah. Slave trading. But for 100, 150 years, like after slavery we're still translating that kidnapping because we didn't want the Bible to condemn slavery so vocally. So, which also brings this weird thing about the Bible in conflict or contrast with itself, mm -hmm. because on one hand you've got multiple places where Paul tells slaves to be obedient. 
Yeah. But then you've also got these places where Paul says that it's a sin and he lumps it together with fornicators and sodomites yeah. to be a slave trader, a slave owner. Yeah. Which, which kind of lends itself to a place to, to say this. Tra- Christian traditions across the board, um, some are now moving away from this slowly, but it's happening. But Christian traditions across the board, at least historically, have perpetuated patriarchy. Oh, yeah, um, for sure. Um, and and so what ends up happening with that is the biblical model of family is perpetuated. Um, yeah, because by and large, the biblical model of family is... Male dominated. Well, it's dominated by this language of wives submit to your husbands. Yeah. And that's been exacerbated by guys, and I'm not I'm not saying anything that they themselves wouldn't say, but it's been exacerbated by guys like John Piper and John MacArthur, who've come up with the complementarian view of marriage that women complement man. They're not equal. Yeah. They may be equal in value or in that, but not in position. They're, they're meant to support. They're a helper. Yeah. Um, which, as several of the examples you just gave, that's not true. Right? It's like, at least inconsistent. Yeah. Because we do have narratives where that is the case. Yeah. Right? I mean, you could point to Genesis 2. Now, Genesis 1, the narrative seems to be they're made at the same time. Right. And, like, both of them are made in the image of God. But then in Genesis 2, that's not the narrative. The narrative is that God made Adam. Mm, and then made Eve saw from that, Adam. Yeah, saw that Adam was lonely, and he needed a helper. Yeah. And then from Adam, not once again from the ground, yeah. from Adam makes Eve, which yeah. then makes her in this weird, like, complementarian position because she's yeah. labeled a helper and she's made from him. Yeah, it, it's hard to talk about this issue from that text because there's so many differing views on whether or not you should take that literally or not. Yeah, um, it is. And, and so it, it's really hard to, to talk about that. But, um, we but ta- as we're talking about the quote-unquote biblical model of family, yes. we need to bring all these in because, number one, my hope is to hear here to show you that it's really inconsistent. Yeah. And also, which is where I think you're going, and I want you to tell us from like um, a cultural side, a statistical side, but uh, it's really unhealthy for people. It's really unhealthy for adolescent development. It's overall really, really unhealthy. Yeah. um, So just kind of jumping right into it, we've talked a lot about um, the, the, the power structure between male and female in the family. Um, but, but what really yeah. happens um, as well um, is think about the kids that are caught in this. They don't have yeah. a choice. Right. And so they're... You don't get to pick who your parents are. No. <laughs> Even in adoption, you don't get to choose. Right. And in no way do you get to pick who your parents are. Never. Um, which... It, that's a bit of a social justice issue um, in some ways, especially from an, an, an adoption standpoint. Yeah. Um, and, and that's a whole nother episode. Oh yeah, for sure. Um, 
but there, there are generally talked about three types of parenting, right? You have the authoritarian, which is the do as I say, because I say so. The, the parent knows best. So that's very much so the biblical model. Yes. Especially like going down to like honor your father and mother. Yes. Right. Like just because they are your father and mother, do as they say, because they're your mother and father. hundred percent. Okay. So you have the authoritarian model. Then you have the, some people call it permissive and uh, I actually learned it as passive. Um, okay. And this is the, the parent that's your friend. Um, okay. doesn't believe in discipline, uh, discipline at all discipline. Sometimes, I mean, maybe, okay. but it, it, it's more, uh, it's less structured. Okay. It's, that's probably a better way to say it. Okay. Um, and then you have the authoritative. So, so going back to the passive or permissive, that's like, it's a very informal relationship Yeah. or, or maybe fluid between yeah. friend and parent. Um, no, that would be more where I'm going next. Oh, okay. Um, so the, the permissive is probably where the parent is more friend than anything. Right. Oh, okay. So they're, um, they're pretty much firmly rooted in the friend. Yeah. So for, for the Gen Z's out there, the millennials maybe might get this, but, um, there is a scene in a movie, um, that came out when we were kids, um, if y'all remember the the live action Ben Ten movie, um, you remember the cartoon Ben Ten? Maybe no, no man. I'm f- I'm firmly rooted as a millennial, and I have no <laughs> idea what you're talking about. <laughs> so, skipping the narrative of the movie, it's about this kid, and he's everything else aside about the movie. His parents don't even want them want him to call them mom and dad. They oh. want Ben to call them by their first name. Interesting. Um, that's more of the permissive, passive kind of parenting. Okay. Right? We're equals. Okay. Um, no hierarchy at all. No hierarchy at all. We're equals. We're your friends. Um, discipline's not really a thing. It's probably more about, like, advice okay. rather than... Okay. Uh, you disobeyed and let let's teach you that when you don't do the things that you're supposed to, there's repercussions. Okay. Um, that's more the permissive passive parenting. Okay. The authoritative is probably more the blend of the two. Okay. Right. Um, so I'm just guessing because we say around here at Wellhouse, the best things come in the middle. That's right. I'm guessing that that's the one we should be striving for. Yeah. So, um, everyone kind of collectively agrees that this is the ideal style of parenting, the authoritative, the authoritative. And now I want to go ahead and let our listeners know I'm not a parent. I don't have kids. I'm a parent. Uh, I have two kids and, I, I don't talk in these terms because I'm a Bible nerd, not a uh, social work student. Um, but I do like having these conversations because especially on here, this is the intersection of faith and culture. And That's we right. don't live in ancient world culture. We live in 21st century culture. That's right. We live in 2020. <laughs> yeah. Which is very different. Um, and, but for me, I, I don't do this. I mean, I, I do, I think, 
this authoritative model of parenting. Um, My kids very much so listen to me when I say that, say to do something. Um, But I also make sure that they know that they can come to me, that I am their friend, that uh, I'm a safe place for them to share their feelings. We frequently ask our daughter, our son has a speech delay, if you didn't Mm -hmm. know. Um, and so it doesn't work as well with him, but our daughter, we frequently ask her rather than getting directly mad at her when she throws a fit, like stop that because I say, stop that. Yeah. We will go to her and say, Hey, can you, can you tell me what you're feeling? Like, why, why do you feel you need to act this way yeah. because of what you're feeling? But the other thing is I have conversations. Which, go ahead. From a social work perspective, that is very person first. Um, it's a very healthy way to do that. Um, it, it's, it's strengths based understanding that she understands her own feelings. Yeah. So we, we learned, I don't know it. I don't know the company, but they have this thing called the feeling corner. And instead of sending a kid to timeout, you send them to the feelings corner in order to identify what they're feeling and communicate that to you. Um, and so we've just used the same kind of idea, but I got this idea because I started listening to a whole lot of people that, and I I found this correlation and I never caught it before I was a parent, but people make up their expressions of faith based on how they view God. So if God's a God of grace, they're going to be very lax and free in their expression if God's a God of wrath and anger, they're going to be very rigid and structured in their expression. And I just realized that a whole lot of people that fell into that God's God of wrath that I need to appease kind of tradition, um, they had a very, what did you call it, authoritarian? Uh, yes. Yeah, they had a very authoritarian view of parenting. Like, do what I say because that's what God does. And so I'm like some, I don't want to say a God complex, but I'm somehow like some earthly representative of God. And it kind of comes from that same language of um, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you get this kind of metaphor, this metaphorical loop here. And I would have conversation with these people and they'd be like, oh yeah, my kid, my kid fears me. Yeah. It's like, oh, you're you're happy about that? <laughs> and they're like, oh yeah, I fear God, so I want my kid to fear me because because kids listen when they're afraid. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, no, kids also listen when they respect. Yes. For me, I don't want my kids to be afraid of me. You know, and and in the the example of the movie that I gave earlier. Ben did not respect his parents. Um, he actually kind of thought that they were pushovers. Yeah, and he thought they were silly. Yeah, uh, he would call them mom and dad just to hear them say, "Don't call me, don't dad. call me mom, don't call me dad." Mm. Um, but I, I picked on the 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 passive model of parenting a little bit. Um, the authoritarian model of family um, can lend itself to uh, 
abuse. Mm. Um, Do you think though? So statistically, those would be the models of parenting to end up with the different kind of abuse and overexertions of power within the model. Yeah. Okay. Um, Interesting. If if they're not careful, it can. Yeah. Um. And and what we end up seeing, um, more than anything, and this might surprise you, um, that neglect is the most common form of abuse. So if you don't know, abuse comes in, in multiple different forms. Um, so you have neglect um, as child abuse. You have uh, psychological abuse. Um physical abuse, and then sexual abuse, right? These are the, the, the four kinds of, of abuse that you really see. Um, and the top three is neglect, physical, and sexual, mm. um, in that order, respectively. Um, and so maybe it's not so much um, that the uh, authoritarian parent... Um, is hitting their kids or physically abusing them. Maybe it's more as they irritate me or you're irritating me, so I'm going to ignore you. Mm. Like, do you, do you see that narrative, that that oh, logical yeah, sure. connection there? Yeah, for sure. Um, that could be what it is. Mm. That's me theorizing a little bit. Um, but it, it makes sense, and... I mean, what do we know about kids later that feel ignored? It leads to um, not doing well in school. Yeah. It leads to violence. Um, And ultimately, where that lands them is not a good place in society. Um, Yeah. More times than, I'm not going to say more times than it, I'm not going to say more times than not. What I'm going to say is that more times than should happen, it ends them in juvie. It ends them um, in prison later in life. Um, Or ends them in life circumstances that could have been avoidable, like teen pregnancy or drug abuse or all these types of things. Or just mental health struggles as an adult. Yeah, so I don't know that side of it as much... um, I, I more know the family systems theory side. Mm, yeah. And basically what family systems theory says is that a family is a system of people and people within a system work according to the people around them. Yeah. So if one person in your family system is overly anxious that's going to affect your activity within the system some kind of way. Yeah. And so if you have someone in this authoritarian kind of worldview as the leader of your quote unquote leader of your family system, by its very nature of being a part of a system, you are going to succumb to the domineering nature of the system. Yeah. So, um, that's a, a very valid point. Um, and if you're not careful, um, you can end up perpetuating that same model of family. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, no, I mean, that's how we've ended up where we are, right? It takes everyone, and 
I tell people this all the time. You know, people come to me and go, oh, well, I wish I would have had this. Yeah. Like, I wish my parents would have done this. Listen to me very clearly, listeners. You can't fault someone for doing only what they know. That's right. If they don't know another system, if they don't know another way, you can't fault them for only living according to what they know. Yeah. Um, and so in the same way as we've lived thousands and thousands and thousands of years according to authoritarian patriarchy, we can't fault people that it's hard to break. I mean, yeah. especially in this country, we don't like to talk about it, but our country is dominated by systems of oppression. Yeah. I mean, the country is literally built on slavery. And yet, when African Americans rise up and start revolting, we tell them, don't do that. But wait six months, and on July 4th, we're going to celebrate our own violent revolution of oppressive systems. We are built on oppressive systems, and it takes time to break those. It does. Um, And you have to be extremely intentional about it. Um, Would you agree? I would. Breaking systems is not easy. Um, And it doesn't come through happenstance. No. You need people who are dedicated to the cause. And I will tell you, just for me, one of the causes that I'm most dedicated to, I think there are a whole lot of people doing active work in racial reconciliation. I think we need more people doing that. I definitely support that movement. But for me, one thing that I don't think we have near enough people doing is fighting for women to have a place in leadership in the church. Yeah. And so that is what I have dedicated myself to. Um, I have a goal that one day... Wellhouse staff will be 60% female. I would love that. Um, I've just, that's something that I have dedicated myself to. And so to your point, no, it doesn't come from happenstance. It comes from people who are dedicated and devoted to making a difference. It does. Um, And so if, if you're listening to this right now, and you're hearing that you might be the authoritarian, mm. that you might be the permissive or passive. Um, think about it. You might not be doing your family the most justice. Or if you have a very complementary view of your marriage, yeah, that women are there to support you, that you go to work and make all the money and she has the sandwich waiting for you when you get home. <laughs> it's a very destructive way to view someone made in the image and likeness of God. Yeah. Um, and your kids are also made in the image and likeness of God as well. Yeah. They I, have dignity and worth too. I think all around, and you know, we didn't we didn't really dive into what the text says, but you can go find these Household codes in Ephesians 5, 
beginning in 21 and in Colossians 3, beginning in 18. And I just read those. And for me personally, you know, I constantly or I frequently talk about myself as a pastor living in a glass house. Mm. As a pastor, you know, everybody now, quote unquote, is like a public figure, right? Like on social media, everybody's yeah. a public figure. Um, Which just means that they post a lot on Instagram. <laughs> yeah. But pastors actually are public figures. Yeah. Because people watch us and we have to live in a glass house because people are always watching us. And for me, I try to be very comfortable in who I am as a person. And I try to be very transparent with who I am so that I don't mind living in that glass house. Mm-hmm. There are some elements of my life that I don't want to invite people into, obviously. Yeah. But for me, as I talk about living in a glass house, when I look at this household code in Ephesians, I wonder how I wonder if I lived my life according to that household code, would I pass the glass house test? Mm. Would the would the general population judge me because I governed my house that way? Wow. I think the answer is absolutely affirmatively yes. And it's because we now know that overall, while there are things in it that are healthy it holistically is unhealthy and destructive yeah. for managing households because it was written 2,000 years ago. It was. It, it's not the way that we should be thinking about the family unit. And if you're listening to this just like a bit mind blown, um, go ahead and join us next week because... I think there's a much better way to build the foundation of your family unit from scripture that is not these household codes. Yeah. So tune in. It might be changed.